close your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to the Ghost Story Guys. Welcome to the Ghost Story Guys. I'm Brendan Storr. I'm Ian Gibbs. And this is the show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 74, and we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about but can never quite reach. How you doing, Ian? I'm pretty good, Brandon. How are you? Well, I'm better now. I, I'm coming out of two weeks of the most awful friggin' depression. Oh, no. Just brutal. I think it's a, the sunlight thing. Oh, it gets pretty gray around oh, here. does it yeah. ever? Oh, yeah. man. But, you know, the thing that's kept me going is this grand experiment that we have to present to our listening audience tonight. A Christmas special, if you will. It, it in fact, is. It, it is really is. The second volume of our very scary Christmas. Yes. And so last with year- With an added twist. W- with a very added twist, <laughs> let's hope. <laughs> so last year, we decided that rather than doing, because uh, the first year, our first Christmas, we did Christmas ghost stories. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, there's only so many of those out there. Yeah. And so what we thought we'd rather do uh, also because these episodes almost always release near on or near Christmas Eve. Right. And people got better shit to be doing than listening to ghost podcasts on <laughs> Christmas Eve. Oh, I hope. I hope. Yeah, I yeah. hope. I mean, don't, hey, if you still want to download I mean, them, I don't, but yeah, no. I'm sure normal people do. Neither do I. <laughs> but uh, no, we decided that we would like to continue the grand Victorian tradition of telling ghost stories on Christmas, but fictional ghost stories. Yeah. So last year we had a very Lovecraft Christmas, which yeah. we later uh, retconned to a very scary Christmas volume one. Right. And that would, on that one, we just read HP Lovecraft stories and we read two each and that was the Christmas show. Yeah. So this year we're going to be doing something similar, but we're only going to be doing one story each. So it's going to be a short episode, but the difference is that instead of one of us reading an entire story, these are going to be presented in, I guess you'd call it almost like a radio drama format. Yeah. So we are going it's to- not just us. No, there is going to be other voices. You will hear other voices, other people who will be playing some of the roles. And but who are already part of the show. Yes. Which is very cool. Absolutely. Yes. We, we'll, we'll let you find out, uh, for your, figure out for yourself who is who. <laughs> but uh, yes, the, the others are, are helping us out with some voices. And this, we're going to have sound effects. And I, I, I'll be honest- as we record this, I have not, I've, I've scripted out a lot of it. Yeah. I haven't done all of it. Right. And so, and I have never really done radio drama on this scale. No, so, I mean, we did it in high school drama class all the time. You, you know, everybody would sit on a stool and you each had your part and I loved it. I right. thought it was so fun. Yeah. And uh, we did it as well in drama and The Haunting of East LA, we took one of Mario's stories and we put some sound effects to it. Right. Uh, but, you know, the, the format of the show didn't really fit with that back then. So I'm, I'm eager now to see how this comes out. Yeah. And, and I, I hope our audience, I hope our audience enjoys it. Now, before we get there though, we had an email and I wanted to talk about this at the front of the show rather than oh, the back Lordy. of the show. Oh, Lordy. We had an email from Tina Jo. She had an incredible story to share. And of course, if you've heard the last episode, 73, I talked about a cave. I think it's called the peanut cave. I yes. was close. Close. It, the, <laughs> the cave is the Nutty Putty Cave. It is in the located in the Midwestern mountains of Utah. And our last episode, we talked about a story of a, a 
some people who were exploring a cave and were being touched by something they couldn't see. Right. And you mentioned that there was, you heard a story. Right. About a, I read the article actually. Yeah. You mentioned yeah. A, an article about a young man who'd gotten stuck in a cave and died. Well, it turns out Tina Joe, she had been in this Nutty Putty cave the month before. Yeah. This young fellow died. And it just reopened. Yes. Yeah. But what's fascinating is Tina's story, and I'm actually just going to read it yeah. directly from her email. Oh, it's brilliant. She says, I just listened to episode 73 and have to tell you some things. First, the cave you're referring to is called the Nutty Putty Cave. It is located in the Midwestern mountains of Utah. I know this because a month before the horrible events of this man's death, my husband and I and a bunch of our friends had gone there and been in the cave. We had turned around and gotten out of there when we reached a tight part of the cave, and my girlfriend screamed that we needed to get out or someone would die. She was so irrational and hysterical that we all left the cave and once outside, decided it would be best just to go, since there seemed to be no way of calming her down. The next day I called her to see if she was feeling better, and she confided in me that while we were in the cave, she kept hearing a voice, saying that she needed to get everyone out before the cave ate us. Mm. It had finally started to scream this at her, making her freak out and start screaming at us to leave. She said how silly she felt, and we both laughed a little and changed the subject, deciding to put the whole thing behind us. No harm, no foul. Imagine how we felt only weeks later. Thank you so much for sharing that with us, Tina. That was incredible stuff. Yes, and thank you for that. Our musical guest on this episode, as it was last Christmas, is Hexagram, with the song Shedrick from their album Crystal Lake. You can find more from them at hexagram.bandcamp.com. Coming up after the break, A Very Scary Christmas, Volume 2. Welcome back. As we said before the break, on this episode, we're celebrating the holiday season, Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, Yule, Yule, Festivus if you're in a Seinfeld, whatever the (laughs) hell it is you celebrate, we are here with you and we are going to do that by honoring the great tradition of oral storytelling through fiction. And this is sort of an, an occasion for me because the second story tonight is a story that I wrote and it's pretty hairy for me to actually like share it this way. Uh, I've tried to have it. I've tried to publish it a couple places. It hasn't gone very well. So, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, if you know what I'm publishing, publish it yourself. Uh, sometimes that's how this podcast started. <laughs> Absolutely. Sometimes you just got to build it yourself. That's right. But yeah, so the first story is going to be, they're both horror stories, of course, to one degree or another. And we're going to, we're going to be presenting them as old time radio dramas. And I loved old-time radio dramas when I was a kid. I used to listen to Fibber McGee and Molly, Dimension X, Halls of Fantasy. And folks, if you love podcasts if and you haven't heard some of these old-time radio dramas, some of the stuff won't translate. Like this, things like Fibber McGee and Molly, I think the humor doesn't really translate anymore. But if you can listen to Halls of Fantasy, and they're online, you can find them for free. They are some killer Twilight Zone-style radio dramas. And just really brilliant stuff, really like full on theater of the mind. And so if you like what we do here, I mean, let us know because we'd love to know what you think of the format. And if you really enjoy it, check out some of these classic radio shows because they will scare the shit out of you. And if you don't like it, let us know. Also that. yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess we should just get to it. I'm loving it. Let's jump in.
The Nightwire by H.F. Arnold Originally published in the September 1926 edition of Weird Tales magazine. New York, September 30th. C.P. Flash. Ambassador Hollowell died here today. The end came suddenly as the ambassador was alone in his study. There's something ungodly about these Nightwire jobs. You sit up here on the top floor of a skyscraper and listen in to the whispers of a civilization. New York, London, Calcutta, Bombay, Singapore, they're your next door neighbors after the streetlights go dim and the world has gone to sleep. Alone in the quiet hours between two and four, the receiving operators doze over their sounders and the news comes in. Fires and disasters and suicides, murders, crowds, catastrophes, Sometimes an earthquake, with a casualty list as long as your arm. The Nightwire man takes it down almost in his sleep, picking it off on his typewriter with one finger. Once in a long time, you prick up your ears and listen. You've heard of someone you knew in Singapore, Halifax, or Paris long ago. Maybe they've been promoted. But more probably, they've been murdered or drowned. Perhaps they just decided to quit and took some bizarre way out made it interesting enough to get in the news. But that doesn't happen often. Most of the time you sit and doze and tap-tap on your typewriter and wish you were home in bed. Sometimes, though, queer things happen. One did the other night, and I haven't gotten over it yet. I wish I could. You see, I handle the night manager's desk in a western seaport town. What the name is doesn't matter. There is, or rather was, only one night operator on my staff, a fellow named John Morgan, about 40 years of age, and a sober, hard-working sort. He was one of the best operators I ever knew, what's known as a double man. That means he could handle two instruments at once and type the stories on different typewriters at the same time. He was one of the three men I ever knew who could do it consistently, hour after hour, and never make a mistake. Generally, we used only one wire at night, but sometimes, when it was late and the news was coming fast, the Chicago and Denver stations would open a second wire, and then Morgan would do his stuff. He was a wizard, a mechanical automatic wizard, which functioned marvelously, but was without imagination. On the night of the 16th, he complained of feeling tired. It was the first and last time I had ever heard him say a word about himself, and I'd known him for three years. It was just three o'clock and we were running only one wire. I was nodding over the reports at my desk and not paying much attention to him when he spoke. Jim, he said. Does it feel close in here to you? Why, no, John, I answered, but I'll open a window if you like. Never mind, he said. I reckon I'm just a little tired. That's all that was said, and I went on working. Every ten minutes or so, I would walk over and take a pile of copy that had stacked up neatly beside the typewriter as the messages were printed out in triplicate. It must have been 20 minutes after he spoke that I noticed he'd opened up the other wire and was using both typewriters. I thought it was a little unusual, and there was nothing very hot coming in. On my next trip, I picked up the copy from both machines and took it back to my desk to sort out the duplicates. The first wire was running out the usual sort of stuff, and I just looked over it hurriedly. Then I turned to the second pile of copy. I remember it particularly because the story was from a town I'd never heard of. Zebico. Here's the dispatch. I saved a duplicate of it from our files. Zebico, September 16th, CP Bulletin. The heaviest mist in the history of the city 
settled over the town at four o'clock yesterday afternoon. All traffic is stopped, and the mist hangs like a pall over everything. Lights of ordinary intensity fail to pierce the fog, which is consistently growing heavier. Scientists here are unable to agree as to the cause, and the local weather bureau states that the like has never occurred before in the history of the city. At 7 p.m. last night, the municipal authorities... That's all there was. Nothing out of the ordinary at bureau headquarters, but as I say, I noticed the story because of the name of the town. It must have been 15 minutes later that I went over for another batch of coffee. Morgan was slumped down in his chair and had switched his green electric light shade so that the gleam missed his eyes and hit only the top of the two typewriters. Only the usual stuff is in the right-hand pile, but the left-hand batch carried another story from Zebico. All press dispatches come in takes, meaning that parts of many different stories are strung along together, perhaps with but a few paragraphs of each coming through at a time. This second story was marked Add Fog. Here's the copy. At 7 p.m., the fog increased noticeably. All lights were now invisible, and the town was shrouded in pitch darkness. As a peculiarity of the phenomenon, the fog is accompanied by a sickly odor, comparable to nothing yet experienced here. Below that, in customary press fashion, was the hour, 327, and the initials of the operator, J.M. There was only one other story in the pile from the second wire. Here it is. Second ad, Zebico Fog. Accounts as to the origin of the mist differ greatly. Among the most unusual is that of the section of the local church, who groped his way to headquarters in a hysterical condition and declared that the fog originated in the village churchyard. It was first visible as a soft gray blanket clinging to the earth above the graves, he stated. Then it began to rise higher and higher. A subterranean breeze seemed to blow it in billows, which split up and then joined together again. Fog phantoms, writhing in anguish, twisted the mist into queer forms and figures. And then, in the very thick midst of the mass, something moved. I turned and ran from the accursed spot, he stated. Behind me I heard screams coming from the houses bordering the graveyard. Although the section story is generally discredited, a party has left to investigate. Immediately after telling his story, the section collapsed and is now in a local hospital, unconscious. Queer story, wasn't it? Not that we aren't used to it, for a lot of unusual stories come in over the wire. But for some reason or other, perhaps because it was so quiet that night, the report of that fog made a great impression on me. It was almost with dread that I went over to the waiting piles of copy. Morgan did not move and the only sound in the room was the tap-tap of the sounders. It was ominous, nerve-wracking. There was another story from Zebico in the pile of copy. I seized on it anxiously. New lead, Zebico Fog CP. The rescue party, which went out at 11 p.m. to investigate the origin of the fog, which, since late yesterday, has shrouded the city in darkness, has failed to return. Another, and larger party, has been dispatched. Meanwhile, the fog has, if possible, grown heavier. It seeps through the cracks in the doors and fills the atmosphere with a depressing odor of decay. It is oppressive, terrifying, bearing with it a subtle impression of things long dead. Residents of the city have left their homes and gathered in the local church, where the priests are holding services of prayer. The scene is beyond description. Grown folk and children are alike terrified, and many are almost beside themselves with fear. Amid the wisps of vapor, which partly veil the church auditorium, an old priest is praying for the welfare of his flock. They alternately wail and cross themselves. From the outskirts of the city may be heard cries of unknown voices. They echo through the fog in queer, uncadenced minor keys. 
The sound resembles nothing so much as wind whistling through a gigantic tunnel. But the night is calm, and there is no wind. The second rescue party... I'm a calm man, and never in a dozen years spent with the wires have I been known to become excited. But despite myself, I rose from my chair and walked to the window. Could I be mistaken? Or far down in the canyons of the city beneath me did I see a faint trace of fog? Pshah, it was all imagination. In the press room, the click of the sounder seemed to have raised the tempo of their tune. Morgan alone had not stirred from his chair. His head sunk between his shoulders. He tapped the dispatches out on the typewriters with one finger of each hand. He looked asleep, but no, endlessly efficiently, the two machines rattled off line after line, as relentlessly and effortlessly as death itself. There was something about the monotonous movement of the typewriter keys that fascinated me. I walked over and stood behind his chair, reading over his shoulder the type as it came into being, word by word. Ah, here was another. Flash Sebago CP. There will be no more bulletins from this office. The impossible has happened. No messages have come into this room for 20 minutes. We are cut off from the outside and even the streets below us. I will stay with the wire until the end. It is the end indeed. Since 4 p.m. yesterday, the fog has hung over the city. Following reports from the section of the local church, two rescue parties were sent out to investigate conditions on the outskirts of the city. Neither party has ever returned, nor was any word received from them. It is quite certain now that they will never return. From the position of this room on the 13th floor, nearly the entire city can be seen. Now I can see only a thick blanket of blackness where customarily are lights and life. I fear greatly that the wailing cries heard constantly from the outskirts of the city are the death cries of the inhabitants. They are constantly increasing in volume and are approaching the center of the city. The fog yet hangs over everything. If possible, it is even heavier than before, but the conditions have changed. Instead of an opaque and penetrable wall of odorous vapor, there now swirls and writhes a shapeless mass and contortions of almost human agony. Now and again, the mass parts and I catch a brief glimpse of the streets below. People are running to and fro, screaming in despair. A vast bedlam of sound flies up to my window, and above all is the immense whistling of unseen and unfelt winds. The fog has again swept over the city, and the whistling is coming closer and closer. It is now directly beneath me. God! An instant ago, the mist opened and I caught a glimpse of the street below. The fog is not simply vapor, it lives. By the side of each moaning and weeping human is a companion figure, an aura of strange and varied colored hues. How the shapes cling, each to a living thing. The men and women are down, flat on their faces. The fog figures caress them lovingly. They are kneeling beside them. They are, but I dare not tell. The prone and writhing bodies have been stripped of their clothing. They are being consumed, piecemeal. A merciful wall of hot, steaming vapor has swept over the whole scene. I can see no more. Beneath me, the wall of vapors is changing colors. It seems to be lighted by internal fire. No, it isn't. I've made a mistake. The colors are from above, reflections from the sky. Look up, look up. The whole sky is in flames, colors as yet unseen by man or demon. The flames are moving. They have started to intermix. The colors are rearranging themselves. They're brilliant. They are so brilliant that my eyes burn. They are a long way off. Now they have begun to swirl, to circle in and out, twisting in intricate designs and patterns. 
The lights are racing, each with each, a kaleidoscope of unearthly brilliance. I've made a discovery. There's nothing harmful in the lights. They radiate force and friendliness, almost cheeriness. But by their strength, they hurt. As I look, they are swinging closer and closer. A million miles at each jump. Millions of miles with the speed of light. I, it is the quintessence of all light. Beneath it, the fog melts into a jeweled mist, radiant, rainbow-colored of a thousand varied spectra. I can see the streets, why they're filled with people. The lights are coming closer. They're all around me. I am enveloped. I... The message stopped abruptly. The wire to Zebico was dead. Beneath my eyes in the narrow circle of light from under the green lampshade, the black printing no longer spun itself, letter by letter across the page. The room seemed filled with solemn quiet, a silence vaguely impressive, powerful. I looked down at Morgan. His hands had dropped nervelessly at his sides, while his body had hunched over peculiarly. I turned the lampshade back, throwing light squarely in his face. His eyes were staring, fixed. Filled with a sudden sense of foreboding, I stepped beside him and called Chicago on the wire. After a second, the sounder clicked its answer. Why? But there was something wrong. Chicago was reporting that wire two had not been used at all throughout the evening. Morgan, I shouted. Morgan, wake up. It isn't true. Someone's been hoaxing us. Why? In my eagerness, I grasped him by the shoulder. His body was quite cold. Morgan had been dead for hours. Could it be that his sensitized brain and automatic fingers had continued to record impressions? Even after the end? I shall never know, for I shall never again handle the night shift. Search in a world atlas discloses no town of Zebico. Whatever it was that killed John Morgan will forever remain a mystery. The Night Wire was originally written by A.J.F. Arnold, adapted for this format by Brennan Storr, and narrated by Ian Gibbs. Additional voices in order of appearance by Anthony Germain as the Zebico Newsman and Lou Greensmith as John Morgan. Coming Home by Brennan Stoll Brainerd Police announced today that arson was to blame for last Friday's early morning fire at the Allstate Building, located 317 Washington Street. Police Chief Walter Badeau told reporters that while details will be kept under wraps until investigators deliver their report early next week, the fire is being considered suspicious. Firefighters credit Friday's freak snowstorm with helping to contain the blaze. 10.15 and it's a little nippy here tonight in Garrison, with the mercury hovering around minus 10. If you're one of those diehard types out there fishing on Garrison Bay, remember to bundle up. I turned off the radio, my dad's old Farnsworth. The small red Bakelite unit had been on the sill above the kitchen sink since I was a kid. Washing the last few suds down the drain, it suddenly occurred to me how stupid it was to have something electrical so close to the water, and I wondered if it had occurred to my father at all. If it had, I thought, he'd probably left it there out of sheer bloody-mindedness. He was like that. The Friday before, when a blizzard had buried most of Crow Wing County in snow, 
The intractable son of a bitch had insisted on shoveling his own driveway instead of hiring someone. Ida Thorson, an iron-haired woman in her 50s who runs the Holiday Station store on Highway 180, found Dad the next morning, face down and frozen solid. And so Buddy Kiefer finally lost the game of chicken he'd been playing with God for the better part of 73 years. When my half-sister Cheryl had called me in Oakland on Saturday to tell me about Dad's death, I don't think, okay, was the answer she expected. The quavering note in her voice firmed up fast, and in the tone angry fat women use when they're spoiling for a fight, she said, You're coming to the funeral, right? I'd last spoken to my father ten years before at Mom's funeral. He'd called me a liberal queer, and I told him he was a worthless bigot prick and that the wrong person was in the box at the front of the church. As far as parting shots go, it wasn't Oscar Wilde, but it was enough to drop my father's jaw, something I'd never seen done. It felt like a victory at the time, but afterward, it was hard to remember that dropped jaw without also remembering the tears that had welled up in his eyes. I hadn't seen that before either. Those tears were the reason I traveled 2,000 miles to say goodbye and try to mend fences with the family. After three days with my half-sister, I decided there was a lot to say for broken fences. My three-year-old nephew Jason chose that moment to speed into the kitchen. From the living room, Cheryl whined. Jason Thomas Horner, get back here right now. When I walked to the doorway, I saw her standing, porcine and sweaty, next to the stairwell. She must have been trying to put him to bed. Seeing me, she put on her best struggling gold star mother face. Mike, he doesn't want to go to bed. Can you just scoop him up there? I'm worn right out. I bit my tongue before I could say that watching from the sofa as everyone else made funeral arrangements and kept house must have been exhausting. The satisfaction wasn't worth the fight, though. Yeah, I'll get him, I said, retreating into the kitchen where Jason was huddled in front of the island. I'd only met him three days before, but already I liked the kid. He had spirit. I think he liked me, too. I crouched down. Come on, big guy. It's bedtime. His brown eyes peeked out from under a shaggy mop of freshly washed blonde hair, and he said, Too cold, Uncle Mike. I couldn't argue with that. Freezing weather was a hell I'd almost managed to forget. I'm cold too, big guy, but there are lots of blankets around. Mommy will make sure you stay warm, and I'll check on you later too. Whether that made sense to him or not, I don't know, but after pursing his lips for a minute, he said, Okay, Uncle Mike. And extended his arms, which was good enough for me. My back protested as I picked him up, but the heaviness of his head on my shoulder produced a contentment that negated any discomfort. As I carried him to his mother, he whispered in my ear, Does the lake make you cold too? The question puzzled me, and after Cheryl put Jason to bed, I asked her about it. Oh, it's because of Dad. She said in a tone that suggested I just asked the world's stupidest question. He's been waking up at night talking about the lake. He knows Grandpa went to heaven at home, but he must have heard someone at daycare talking about the fishermen and gotten confused. Ice fishing was big business in Garrison, and every year at least half a dozen drunken sportsmen freeze to death on our lake, Mill Lock, after wandering away from their shacks in the dark. As far as Cheryl was concerned, the conversation was over and she turned her attention back towards the television. Soft California constitution or no, I decided I'd rather be outside in minus 15 weather than sitting here with her or staring at the walls of my room. Outside the streets were empty, and the crunch of snow underfoot was the only sound I could hear. In the silence, my mind picked over the events of the last week. Cheryl's phone call, the bumpy flight from Oakland, the waxy body at the funeral chapel that used to be my dad. I was so preoccupied that I didn't notice I'd arrived at the lake until I heard the creaking of the old boat launch. 
Maybe it was some kind of bone-deep need to dislike everything my family loved, but I'd never taken a Millock. Jet skis are for assholes, and I was always just a little too chubby to comfortably take off my shirt in public. But alone, walking along its edge as the shifting moonlight lit the ice, making it look like cold fire, I felt an unexpected surge of affection for it. The lake's marina extends out from the shore in a half-mile wooden arc, and the air got colder and colder the further I walked out over the water. At the end of the marina is a plaza dotted with several poorly made sheds, each casting oblong shadows. As kids, we joked that they were built by drunks, but in the polar emptiness of that night, they weren't funny at all. In fact, just looking at them made me uncomfortable for reasons I couldn't explain. To my left, the steel gate leading down to the boat ramp was hanging open, its rusted bulk stirring slightly as I walked past. From where I was standing, I could see the three parallel docks the summer crowd used to tie up their boats. Now they were all gnarled through with ice, locked in place till the thaw came. The docks were the same length and perfectly straight, yet, from above, I could have sworn the two at the sides were bowing in slightly, drawing my eyes towards the center. An unease started to gnaw at me then, but even so I couldn't stop myself from walking further down the icy wooden ramp. Seen from below, the latticework of timbers supporting the marina took on the appearance of an enormous ribcage descending from its spine and I was sorry I'd looked. At this point, I'd like to say that I came to my senses and went back home to my room, but that's not what happened. By now, I felt as though I was a performer, following a script I'd never seen but somehow knew by heart. There was room for improvisation around the edges, but the thrust of the story had long since been decided. With the docks locked in ice, it looked like he could step right off the edge and walk forever into the frigid dark. I imagined my father in his Husqvarna jacket and red woolen cap, putting down his fishing rod and walking away until the night swallowed him, just the way Jason said. I shook my head. Jason was three and genuinely believed a rabbit brought him presents every Easter. No one expected him to have his facts straight. Middle-aged men who travel thousands of miles to somewhere they're not wanted in order to show up a dead man were supposed to know better. But that unease which had started moments earlier, it blossomed into full-on nausea as a sound broke the silence. It started out like a great yawn, then deepened to a rumble. Its pitch increased, and I recognized it as a sound of cracking ice. The frozen crust surrounding the middle dock was starting the spiderweb, buckling rather than splintering, as if it was being pulled downwards into the lake. As the intensity of the noise increased, I felt the platform where I was standing begin to bend. And just as I thought I was about to be pitched headlong into the rapidly disintegrating surface, the center dock broke free and sank into the lake, followed by the ice around it. The odd sinkhole grew outwards, perfectly round and looking entirely too much like a frozen throat. It stopped only feet from me. Clouds covered the moon above, but even in the half-light I could see that the rim of the thing wasn't like ice or water. Instead it was smooth and warm to the touch, like newly blown glass. Carefully, I peered over the edge. The walls of the thing glistened, and I could see the shaft went down at least ten feet before disappearing into darkness. That didn't make any sense. The ice on any part of the lake couldn't be more than a foot and a half deep at most, but I wasn't given any time to think about it. As quickly as one noise had faded, another took its place. This noise was wet and pulsing, and despite every brain cell telling me it was wrong, An idiot curiosity took hold and I had to know what was making it. Overhead the clouds finished passing across the face of the moon and in its light I got my answer. 
a wet, roiling black mass swarming up towards me with a grotesque agility. I couldn't tell if it was one thing or many, and I wasn't going to stay to find out. I ran. Reaching the boat ramp, I heard the things crash onto the wharf where I'd been standing. It sounded like roadkill being dragged into a ditch, burst entrails scraping on concrete. Almost insane with terror, I slipped on my way back up the ramp and heard them gain ground. The horrible slaughterhouse noise seemed only feet away as I regained my footing and scrambled up the boat ramp past the rusted gate. The unusual shadows of the tool shed seemed to reach for me across the plaza. No matter how hard I ran, the creatures gained and the hazy lights on the shore came no closer. My last thought before being overcome was of Jason. As the light faded and I was sucked into an icy, fibrous mass that quivered with awful vitality, I heard his voice whispering, Does the lake make you cold too? Two fishermen found me unconscious and hypothermic in the center of Mill Lock, miles from both the shore and marina. The doctors at St. John's told me that aside from a coin-sized patch on the back of my neck, I'd escaped frostbite. They called it a medical miracle, and I didn't correct them. They also said that I must have become disoriented by the cold and walked away from the shore. I didn't correct them on that either. When I was well enough, I left the hospital and went straight home to Oakland, missing my father's funeral. The angry answering machine messages from Cheryl thinned out after a few weeks, and though I felt bad for leaving Jason, I couldn't go back to Garrison. The gap in my memory between being taken and being found has never filled, but when the temperature drops, I start to shake, and faintly I hear a wet, pulsing sound inaudible to everyone else. Winter is coming back around, and as the one-year anniversary of that night approaches, the frostbite scar on my neck has begun to tingle. It has to be a coincidence. It has to be. Coming Home was written and narrated by Brennan Storr. Hey, I know that guy. With additional voices from Ian Gibbs as newscaster and Sarah Kent as Cheryl and Jason. All music in these audio dramas was provided by Epidemic Sound, with the exception of the final song from Coming Home, which was There Are No Answers by Hexagram, which was used with permission. We'll be right back with our patron shoutouts and listener mail. Welcome back. So this is, it occurred to me in the break, this is our last episode for 2019. Oh my Lord. And yeah. happy three-year anniversary, by the way. Oh, not quite yet. Isn't it de Jan December? Nope. January. End of January. Oh, never mind. So almost. Eh, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> I probably deserve that for something. <laughs> so just then looking back on the, on the year we've had, you know, we, we have grown so much. Yeah. And we have so many new people listening. We've this was a year that uh, Anthony came on board. I believe his sister Anthony came on board. Sarah came on board. 
and we just we managed to keep Luke. We managed to keep <laughs> Luke. Yeah, he hasn't walked away. Thank God, hasn't left us in the dust. That's <laughs> been a really wonderful year. And you, audience patrons, you've all been part of that. Absolutely, you've all helped take us from a show that's just kind of a hobby to a show that's well, still a hobby, but a hobby that actually allows me to uh, pay some of my bills. You know, I'm still not working, but this allows me to live and work on the shows and do other things. And it's just a wonderful gift uh, that you've given us. And I cannot tell you how happy we are, how how lucky we are to have that. And I, I can't wait to see where the new year takes us. You know, it's uh, it's an exciting time. And so, yes. Thank you for coming on that journey with us. Yeah. I find this podcast fulfilling in a way. Maybe I should Maybe I should phrase it this way. I find this podcast more fulfilling than any other creative endeavor I've ever been part of. I get that. I enjoy I get that. This, yeah. you know, this has sort of allowed me to realize this is what I love doing. Yeah. I would keep doing this until you pry the mic from my cold dead face. <laughs> like it's, it's, and so having this show has allowed me to finally see what it is I like doing, what it is I'm good at. Excellent. And that is something I have spent, uh, I'm 36 now. I spent 33 years. Trying to figure that out. That's awesome. And so, folks, to thank you to everybody. Thank you to everybody, and, yeah. and thank you to you oh, on the other side of the table. No, don't. Oh, gross. That's right. Take it. Ugh. Take it. No. <laughs> I'm gagging already. That's right. On my own vomit. Don't get too excited. <laughs> no, I agree, and it's been a lot of fun, and I'm, um, I'm blown away by how it's progressed and to think it all just came from well i could do a podcast or i could do a blog and then it was like i don't know how to do a podcast and then that's where you came in (laughs) yeah it's like hey ever thought about doing a podcast yeah i have would you ever do a podcast with me yeah i would okay good and away we go and away we go a lot quicker than i thought we would that's for sure oh man that was awesome that was so yeah so just again thanks to everyone who's come with us this far and I hope you stick with us. I think we're going to go exciting places. Ah, oh, me too. Like I said, man, to stop me, they're going to have to kill me. <laughs> I'm saving up. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's a race now. <laughs> Who can pay the hitman's deposit first? Exactly. <laughs> well, let's just straight up thank also the other members of the team. Luke Greensmith, Anthony Germain, and Sarah Kent. Yes. It's been a wild year. I look forward to seeing what we can accomplish in 2020. Bigger, better. Yes. Now, on to the patrons who are going to help me pay for that hitman. Dun, 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 dun. Charge. <laughs> of course, we'd like to thank all our patrons, but we'd especially like to thank our newest patrons. They are... Jenny Hales. Smelly Weasel 23. Michael Llewellyn. Sam Davis. Melanie Pringle. And Laura. Thank you so much, guys. For the reasons I said before, I won't I won't keep getting mushy about thank this. Thank God. You're welcome. But uh, yes, thank you so much. Again, you just make the dream possible, and it means the world to us. So if you want to join the team, head on over to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That is patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. And we have tiers at the $1, 5 10 20 and $50 levels, which includes everything from exclusive stickers, the Cabin Fever shows, you get early access to the episodes, sometimes as much as a week early, usually two or three days, sometimes a week if we record early. You also get access to the monthly live show, early access to Luke's monthly Luke Lore series, Ian's smash hit Kristen Country album, Aware of Wonder, <laughs> Signed art cards of my night photography and a whole bunch of more stuff. It's a great community. We are thrilled to be a part of it and we love for you to join it too. 
Again, that's patreon.com slash ghost story guys to find out more. Next up, we have listener mail. Our courteous and efficient staff is on call 24 hours a day to serve all your supernatural elimination needs. We're ready to believe you. As always, we'd like to thank everyone who got in touch. We appreciate hearing from you and knowing you're out there. This time around, we'd like to thank Jeffrey, Wendy, Delaney, Liz, Alan, Azalea, Mike, Bob, Jesse, Tegs, Rin, Leslie, Nicholas, Derek, Annie, Ashley, Jordan, Megan, Tina Joe, and Mackenzie. Thank you so much for reaching out, guys, with your comments, your questions, your gentle criticisms. We appreciate it all. If you want to get in touch, send us an email to ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. If you've got a ghost story to share or just a paranormal story in general, we would love to hear it. And we are prepping a listener stories episode for the end of January, which for our, uh, I guess, technically our season four opener. Yeah. That's, that's how iTunes wants me to describe it. <laughs> we would love to hear it. Send it to ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. You can also find us at Facebook at facebook.com slash ghoststoryguys. We're Ghost Story Guys on Twitter and Instagram at the Ghost Story Guys. But if you do have a story to share, please send it to the email address. Uh, if you do send it to us via Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, God help us, it'll probably get lost. <laughs> it's just, yeah, we're, it's a whole thing. Sorry. <laughs> it's just a thing. But yes, we would love to hear your story and share it on the show. But if you don't want us to share it, you just want us to know, totally fine. Or if you want to share it, but you want your real name kept out of it, that's doable too. Just let us know. Ghoststoryguys, gmail.com. We'll figure it out together. If you want to pick up some Ghost Story Guys merch, head on over to our Redbubble store at ghoststoryguys.redbubble.com. There you'll find links to all our designs, all the different merch you can get. And if you do buy something, make sure to let us know and we will send you a sticker as a thank you. Just forward us your receipt or send us a screen cap of your receipt and we'll make sure to get a sticker to you as a thank you. The theme song for our show, Radio, Into the Darkness We Go, is composed and performed by Peter of Pizzanta Music. You can find more from him at soundcloud.com slash Music. Our stories theme is The Future Belongs to Them Now by Hexagram. And our bumper music on this show is, of course, another Hexagram track that is Shedrick. It's available on their Crystal Lake album. You can find that at hexagram.bandcamp.com. That's Hexagram with two X's, not three. And The Future Belongs to Them Now is exclusive to this show, but if you sign up as a patron at the $10 level, you do get an MP3 for use as a ringtone, or just to listen to. Totally your call. <laughs> All other music on this episode was provided courtesy of Epidemic Sound. If you're looking for pod-safe music or sound effects for your next project, head on over to epidemicsound.com and check them out. Sound effects on this episode also by Epidemic Sound, with additional sounds courtesy of freesound.org. Don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Every little bit helps. Gets the eyes on the show, bumps the numbers. I think we actually broke into the top, I want to say top 50 in Canada in something recently. Wow. Yeah. yeah we're, we're Probably not, like ghost show from British Columbia Islands or something. Yeah. Really specific. Hosted by two guys named Brendan. Hosted by two chubby guys. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. We get, we're, in, we're, not, we're in the top 50 of Hooray. podcasts hosted by chubby guys. <laughs> oh no, I doubt that. <laughs> <laughs> Ghost podcasts Ghost, yeah. hosted by Chubby Guys. Oh, no, you're right. That's a really big field. Whose names start with B and I. <laughs> then we then we corner that market. That we, we are dominating <laughs> that particular stretch. Yeah. But thank you, everyone. Um, again, like what Brennan was saying. And whether you celebrate big, you celebrate little, you don't celebrate at all. Whatever is going on for you this month, know that we are so grateful for you. We love you. And uh, I hope you have at least some time with family who you like uh, during this time. And um, Or friends if you don't like your family. Your friends if you don't like your family. And I'm, we are already looking forward to hanging out with you in January. Absolutely. 
So I guess that's going to do it. Yeah. We will be back in two weeks with another show. Another show that was recorded way in advance. Yes. So we can take some time off. But we will be back in two weeks with another show. And until then, into the darkness we go. Yeah, sorry, it's distracted. Fair. <laughs> You're gonna be distracted by anything. I am uh, in this fog. <laughs> sound like you're making fun of uh... a child. I don't think this is approved by Doctor Spock. No, I'm pretty sure this is not a healthy family dynamic. <laughs> that wasn't very whiny. How do you whine that though? I can bitch that, but like, <laughs> how can this still be news though? <laughs> fog phantoms. It was a bad scene. That's impressive. In a way, yeah, yeah, it's very true. I mean, where do you even find the time? That, yeah, you're eating a lot of bananas. It's a lot of work. I'm telling you. <laughs> you son of a bitch. Bidet. Like bidet, but bidet. But bidet. Like bidet, if you if you clog the bidet, you go bidet. Or you clog the bidet with a piece of deer. <laughs> that was awesome. Die. <laughs> but let's try the never mind fast. Like a quick dismissal. I had a hot toddy. <laughs> yes, I'm a functioning alcoholic. They know I'm there. They do it anyway. <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with us? What is wrong with me? I know. I guess we can't really say that, though. No. You done there, Sniffy? <clears throat> I think so. It's the Coke. You can't afford cocaine. It's true. <laughs>